Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. Keep on partying in the free world. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, indeed, the world of Album Clash will always be free because we are not proficient enough to charge you for our uh, inane nonsense. And no one is going to pay for the Patreon. (laughs) No. Only fans? (laughs) I mean, that's going to be niche. <laughs> Let us know, guys, uh, if you'd like Kev and or I to start an OnlyFans page. <laughs> it depends how much you guys are willing to pay for it. <laughs> I, I think the best offer we'll get is a curly whirly, and that's not a euphemism, by the way. Done, taken. I'll, I'll have that. <laughs> right. Uh, enough of this nonsense. Hello, Kevin. How are you? I am very good. How are you? I am very good. Also, looking forward to getting into a new clash. Oh, yes. I'm very excited by this. Mm. Yeah. We take a trip to Memphis today on our musical road trip. Well, sort of. Um, (laughs) The album I'm going to be taking us through is Aretha Franklin's I Never Loved a Man The Way I Love You. Uh, That, in two weeks' time, will be going head-to-head with... The Reverend Al Green's I'm Still In Love With You. Yeah. And so, yeah, my choice... And the connection is Memphis, Tennessee. So Aretha obviously is from Memphis. Uh, Al Green is the reverend of a Baptist church in Memphis. So Memphis was the connection. Yes, and uh, I'm Still In Love With You was recorded in Memphis, Tennessee. Indeed. I Never Loved a Man The Way I Love You was not. (laughs) No, but we will definitely get into that. We will indeed, because there's a lot to get into with the recording. But uh, but yeah, I suppose the the other connection is... They were highly successful albums for artists that were already quite experienced. And certainly in the case of today's album, it was a breakthrough album for Aretha. I know Al Green had already had some success prior to I'm Still In Love With You, but it was certainly seen as a landmark of his. Well, yeah, I think I think you're right to highlight that, that whilst Al Green had had some success, Aretha had been around for quite a bit, but this these albums and particular songs on these albums were ones that really broke them right into the mainstream of popular music in America and around the world. Yep, indeed, exactly that. But uh, before we get into any of that stuff, as usual, let's do some Can't Get You Out of My Head. Kev, is there any shite stuck in your head? Fortunately, I have managed to avoid it. Oh, okay, I haven't, unfortunately. And the shite that stuck in my head, I'm pretty sure you will have heard as well, because I heard it at Anfield on Saturday. <laughs> so what What was it? So, yeah, as we've spoken about before, Kevin and I both go and watch Liverpool, and just before the end of the half-time break, uh, during Saturday's game against Wolves, George, the guy that does the music in the town at Anfield, played the lamentable... America by Razorlight. Oh yeah, I, I did note that um, that that was playing, and little bit of sick came up in my mouth. So Razorlight were the fucking absolute worst of bland Phil indie, 
and they made themselves worse after they went to America and like discovered that it was you know dead big and stuff. See, razor light to me is synonymous with um, white skinny denim jeans and white V neck t shirts. Yeah, and shit traps. Just awful. I hate razor light. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so that's stuck in my head and awful <laughs> what about good stuff what do you want to give a shout to and put on our playlist um so i'm going to put on our playlist something very different from what we've had before so okay. a bit of blues Ooh, okay so uh taj mahal legendary artist yeah um has a new album coming out uh, later this year which is called savoy and the lead single off that is g baby ain't i good to you and it's a proper bit of blues. I would suggest it's perfect for a Sunday morning, probably listening to Caddis Matthews on Six great. Music. It's absolutely great. So what I will say is I, I don't love all of the stuff that Caddis Matthews plays, but her show is absolutely perfect, like you said, for a lazy Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what you want on. Uh, fair play. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Taj Mahal, actually. Uh, because the song I'm going to pick is by uh, an artist who one of the inspirations was Taj Mahal. So I usually try and pick something which is either new or something a little bit different that you guys might not have heard before. But I've got to be honest, for reasons that we will absolutely get into during today's pod, I've been listening to loads of Allman Brothers stuff over the past week or two. Yeah. And so I I wanted to pick something by the Allman Brothers band. It's, for me, got to be something from Live at Fillmore East, which was their breakthrough album. I highly recommend you go and have a listen to it. And the song I'm going to pick is the opening track from Live at Fillmore East. It's Statesboro Blues. It's what they opened all their sets with, really. Mm -hmm. It's not too long, which some of their tracks can go on a bit. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it gives you a nice taster for everything that the Allman Brothers Band were about in around about four minutes or so. So check it out. Boss. Uh, And yes, as I say, Taj Mahal, definitely uh, an influence on Dwayne Allman. Yeah, so... Very much um, guitar heavy this week, so we'll, mm. we'll next time we do our maybe we'll have some beats thrown in. Indeed. Right there, you go. That's can't get you out of my head. I'm gonna before we go on to top trumps, I'm gonna bring back something which we've not done for a few weeks. It is our quick fire oh. keep or throw feature, and I think it's my turn to challenge you. And I'm going to pick three albums which I believe you own or owned at some point. Mm -hmm. So, first album, Keep or Throw, The Stereophonics, Performance and Cocktails. See, I don't know what's coming next, so... So remember, you've got to keep at least one and throw at least one. I'm going to (laughs) throw. Okay. Next... Top Loader, Onka's Big Mocker. <laughs> you did own that, though, did you not? Very briefly, yes. <laughs> to my eternal shame. And you, you have fallen deliciously into oh, my trap, bastard. because my third album, and the one that you have to keep, is Standing on the Shoulders of Giants by Oasis. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to keep it for Little James. <laughs> <laughs> we need to do that album, because, guys, if you thought we hate Listen to Be Here Now, fucking hell. <laughs> maybe maybe we should do a season of hate listening. 
I absolutely think we should because we we talk in glowing terms about too many things and I'm going to spoil things for you guys. The next two shows aren't going to change that very much. Yeah, cuz cuz we it's it's well established from a previous pod that we we're, we're not big fans of Aretha Franklin at all <laughs> and we've never mentioned the Reverend Al Green at all either. <laughs> Indeed. Uh yep, so there you go. Kev loves standing on the shoulders of giants. <laughs> So did you own all three of those albums? Regretfully, yes. Ouch. I have to admit it. I don't know what possessed me to buy the Top Loader album. I, no. There was, no. A, there was clearly something going wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, uh, you can get your revenge on me uh, in a few weeks. <laughs> right, shall we do some Top Trumps? Yeah, I think this is going to be slightly easier for you than me. Yeah, I'm really confident here. Uh, after two, after two uh, quite emphatic defeats, I'm. Uh, I think I might be in for a clean sweep here, Kev. I think you've got a good. I think you've got a good shot at it. Right. Okay. But you won last time again, so you mm-hmm. get to pick first category. So I think I will go with ratings. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I've got five stars from all music. Ditto. I've got an A minus from uh, Nobby McGee. Well done, Nobby's given Aretha an A. Um, <laughs> Rolling Stone, five stars. Yeah, also five stars. And Pitchfork, 9.4 out of 10. Uh, I haven't checked the Pitchfork rating for Aretha. The other one I've got is a, is a four out of five from Q. So I don't have a Q rating. So what are we saying about that then? That's a draw. I mean, <laughs> is, is it really a draw? Yeah, it's a draw. <laughs> I, I would say that uh, Nobby's swung that one for me. Uh, well, if you if you want to take the Pyrrhic victory, then, you know, <laughs> then you're a smaller man than me. Uh, agreed. So one more <laughs> to me. <laughs> Right, uh, I'm going to go in reverse order up through the list then. So let's do your all-time top rankings. Uh, So, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. In the Rolling Stone Top 500 was listed uh, in 2003 at number 83. In 2012, that had gone down a place to 84. But in 2020, it shot up to 13. Definitely lower. (laughs) 2003 was uh, 285. 286 in 2012 and 306 in 2020. Wow. Okay. So that's uh, harsh. It is harsh, uh, but it's also 2 0 to me. So never mind, eh? (laughs) Uh, Right. What can you do in terms of awards? I mean, I really like it. (laughs) (laughs) Have you given Al Green an award for your life? Yes. I've given it the the Golden Kevy. May I see a picture of him accepting the award, please? Unfortunately, um... <laughs> you accepted it on his behalf. Yes. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> nice try. Kevin's holding up a green Sharpie, not a golden Kevin. <laughs> uh, right, so back in the real world, Aretha won two Grammys for I Never Loved a Man, both for respect. One for best R and B solo vocal performance, and one for best R and B recording. So two awards there. Fair enough. So that's three nil. Certifications is probably my shakiest ground. All I've got is a gold cert in the USA. So I've got a platinum award in the US. Okay, you win then. There you go. Yes. Not a clean sweep. Three one. 
you can still get a draw. I think it's unlikely. This could be your Istanbul moment, Kev. <laughs> um, so we might as well go with a chart. Yep. So on the US R&B chart, it reached number one. Ditto. On the US Billboard 200, mm-hmm. number four. Number two. Ah, damn it. Yeah. Also number two in Canada and number 35 in the UK. I don't have figures for um, other territories. Okay, so I take that one for one and I win, uh, which just leaves us with sales. I never loved a man sold around about two million copies. Um, so I don't have the worldwide number. Um, so I only have uh, US sales, which were a million. So you win. Uh, yeah, I do. 5 1. There you go. Get in. So, uh, yeah, I'm still claiming the uh, victory on scores because uh, the scores for <laughs> well, I got me, album were better. I got me consolation anyway, you so, did, you know. You did. Have we ever had a complete 6-0 whitewash? I don't th- I think we can't. I think there was one where it was 5 now. Yeah, there was a 5 with a draw, uh, yeah. Yeah, but... yeah. Okay, fair enough. No one's done the full uh, Sir Garfield Sobers 6-6 six, in and over yet, <laughs> though. <laughs> right, shall I start taking us through? I never loved a man. The way I love you. Yes, let's let's do it. Okay, so I mean, there's quite a bit to get through in the background in terms of the recording. Some some interesting, <laughs> some interesting some behaviour. Yeah, indeed. So this is the tenth tenth studio album from Aretha Franklin, released on the tenth of March, nineteen sixty-seven, on Atlantic Records. It was her first album with Atlantic. The recording took place between the 24th of January and the 26th of February, 1967, at the legendary fame studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and the Atlantic Recording Studio in New York. So, Aretha, so I said it's her 10th album. She'd signed at the age of 18 with Columbia Records in 1960. Now, interestingly... So she was managed at that time by her father, of whom we have spoken before, the Reverend C.L. Franklin. Mm. So uh, there were loads of record companies interested in signing her, including Tamler. Berry Gordy wanted to sign Aretha, but C.L. Franklin thought that the label wasn't established enough, so he turned them down. I mean, what might have been? Madness. Yeah, madness indeed. <laughs> I mean, in the end, it worked out okay for her, to be fair. And, you know, Motown did all right, but... True. But can you imagine Aretha working with Marvin? (laughs) Wow. Exactly. Stevie. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Anyway, she didn't sign with Tamla. She signed with Columbia. Um, But by the end of 66, she was basically becoming stagnant at the label. She'd had nine albums released, as I said. Mostly sort of gospel-style, poppy, uh, jazz-influence-type stuff. And there had been some minor chart success in there, but nothing lasting in terms of commercial uh, and critical success. Columbia just didn't know what to do with her. Like they, well, knew, they knew that she was good, but like they just couldn't find a vehicle for her that would work. Exactly. And to be fair, the, the label executive, John Hammond, before he uh, founded Jurassic Park, uh, he, <laughs> he did say that Columbia didn't understand how to capitalise on her gospel background, basically. So Columbia, you know, in the fullness of time, came to realise they dropped a massive bollock by letting her contract expire. Um, <laughs> realised, yeah, 
I think she went to the right place with Jerry Wexler and Atlantic Records. Well, and given Atlantic's um, history with Ray Charles as well, um, Mm -hmm. where obviously he'd brought gospel and popular music together, that it would be a much more natural uh, place for her to, to turn up, really. Indeed. So, she did go to Atlantic Records, having been persuaded by Jerry Wexler. He decided that he could take advantage of her gospel background. So she signed with Atlantic, I think, December 66. And in the late January 67, Jerry Wexler wanted to get her straight into the studio. He took her down to uh, Muscle Shoals in Alabama to work at Rick Hall's Fame Studio. That's where Wilson Pickett recorded Land of a Thousand Dances. And Jerry Wexler himself had had success there because uh, that is where he made When a Man Loves a Woman with Percy Sledge, who was working as a hospital orderly at the time he recorded that track. Indeed. (laughs) Not many porters uh, releasing records nowadays. (laughs) No. no. And a great track that is, or at least was, until Michael Bolton ruined it. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) <laughs> I've completely forgotten about the Bolton's um, yeah. cover. Yeah. Um, How did I live? <laughs> oh, God, stop it. Stop <laughs> singing Michael Bolton. <laughs> oh, dear, I'm sorry for bringing that to everyone's attention. Anyway, so Rick Hall, the owner of Fame Studio, he described how that session at Fame uh, with the Reefer came to be. Of course, I'd never heard of her. She couldn't get arrested. She'd never had a hit record. I didn't know whether she could have a hit record. She came in here, she had her song down, and she just sat at the piano there, right by the window, and played Never Love the Man the Way I Loved You. We were immune to that. What's this song all about? It sounds like an old waltz. It's got a waltz beat. You can't dance to it, so it's not going to happen. Well, he was wrong. (laughs) Um, The famed songwriter Dan Penn again describes the same moment. He says, suddenly she walks over to the piano, sits down at the stool. She kind of looks around like no one's watching me. I thought she thought just for a second, is this not my session? And with all the talent she had, she just hit this unknown chord like a bell ringing. And every musician in the room stopped what they were doing, went to their guitars and started tuning up. So basically Rick Hall had, he needed the business. And Jerry Wexler is a big name. So he doesn't want to say to Jerry Wexler, it's not happening, mate. This this girl's never going to be a star. He's like, all right, we'll see what we can do. Aretha had come across as quite shy and introverted. And she'd took control of the session by just going about her thing and going, no, 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 this is what we're doing. Here we go. I'm going to play and you're going to listen. And there we go. Fair play. So they cut I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You, the song, not the whole album, and then Trouble. So, some things occurred. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So by this time, Aretha was being managed by her then-husband, Ted White. He had gone down to Muscle Shoals with her, and, well, let's let The Guardian and Rick Hall pick up the story. He bought in a bottle of vodka, Ted White, that is or sent out and got a bottle of vodka. He began to drink and passed the bottle around to some of the horn players. Well, everything was groovy until about two o'clock in the afternoon. Then he started getting pretty loopy. So Ted White apparently came into the, the console room and said to Rick Hall, I want you to hire the trumpet player. He's making passes at my wife. 
So the trumpet player was fired, sent home, and a couple of hours later, after another complaint from Ted White, the sax player was fired too. And again, Rick Hall. So tension begins to get thick in the studio, and people start to get a little antsy, and they know things aren't good, and they wonder what's going on. Jerry said, let's just call the session off. We'd done one song, and we were into the second song. So they laid down the backing track for Do Right Woman, Do Right Man, and at that point, the session was stopped. Ironically. <laughs> Indeed. So, again, this is Rick Hall. So, to my nerves, I had a drink or two of vodka myself, and I said to Jerry, I'm going over to the hotel where they're staying to work this out. We'll have a drink together, and we'll talk it out, and everything will be fine tomorrow. And Jerry Wexler said, Oh, God, please don't, Rick. Don't go over there. It'll be trouble. So, I went. Who was right, Kev? I'm going to go Jerry Wexler. We probably should have listened to him. Yeah, indeed. Rick Hall should definitely have listened to Jerry Wexler because whatever happened in the lobby of the hotel, Rick Hall and Ted White came to blows. (laughs) Again, Rick Hall. So I went to talk to Ted and we came to blows. Jerry said, I'm leaving this town. I'll never come back. I'll bury you. He did definitely come back to the town. I'll come back to that and we'll go to the legacy. (laughs) So Rick Hall says back, you can't bury me, you're too old. So it was war from then on. I hated him and he hated me. I made a terrible mistake going over there and getting into it with Ted. And for all that, I was sorry. But, you know, things happen. So, um, yeah, just, you know, when a fella's had a drink and he's acted like a dickhead, don't follow him and try and straighten things out. (laughs) Because it will probably end up with someone getting a straightener. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Anyway. Aretha left Muscle Souls with Ted White the next day and Jerry Wexler. Uh, I will come back to the aftermath of that session later on and what it led to when we go through the legacy because it's absolutely fascinating, brilliant story. But in terms of the album itself, Jerry Wexler flew the Muscle Souls rhythm section, the, the studio band from Fame Studios, up to New York to finish recording the album in his own Atlantic Records studio. So the title song, uh, and the only song recorded in its entirety at Fame, was then released as a single on the 10th of February, 67. Uh, That reached number nine on the Billboard Hot 100, making it Aretha's first top ten hit. And not not a bad tune. Not a bad tune at all. But yeah, that's about it on the background. I've got I've got loads more to get into regarding Muscle Shoals, uh, but that's for the legacy. Mm-hmm. So, Kev, how did you first discover I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You? So, um, much like the story of many of the albums that we've done recently, the mid-2000s internet... Um, provided prov- an opportunity provided for you to op- discover opportunities it. for me to uh, discover this album and listen to it which I uh, very much took up. Excellent. Uh, So much more recently for me, within the last five, ten years, uh, so when I started to get more and more into Aretha's music, which I've said before, I have a a particular fondness for Aretha, um, as a landmark album of hers, this was an obvious one to go to. It isn't my favourite of her albums, but it is obviously a classic, and I have revisited it many times since first listening. Just out of interest, um, have we previously covered your favourite? We have not. Oh, okay. Because we have covered my favourite. Yeah, I think my favourite is either Lady Soul or This Girl's In Love With You. 
this girl's in love with you is an absolute belter. So that's the one that has her cover of a Son of a Preacher Man, her mm-hmm. covers of Eleanor Rugby and Let It Be, and her cover of the band's The Weight with Dwayne Orman oh, on guitar, which a, is fucking brilliant. That is an absolute belter. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, but anyway, we're not covering uh, either <laughs> um, Lady Soul or This Girl's In Love With You today. We're covering uh, I Never Loved A Man The Way I Love You. So... Um, should we have a little chat about the artwork? Yeah, I think we I think we should. Uh, yeah, so the photograph was taken by uh, Jerry Schatzberg. Poor fellow, that must have been a hell of a clean-up job. <laughs> and uh, the design was by Loring Utame, which I'm pretty sure was the character played by Whoopi Goldberg in Ghost. Or it's something that you do need to get a cream from the doctor for. We've <laughs> got a terrible case of Loring Utame. I mean, it's weeping and everything. <laughs> oh, dear me. Horrible. As for the cover itself, yeah, it's it, it's a photo of Aretha taken at a rather jaunty angle. Uh, her hair's in a bouffant and she's got a nice ball gown neckwear thing on. Interesting font game. See, I've put interesting font as well. It's not. It doesn't scream classic soul album at you, does it? It's also like considering the album was recorded in '67, that font screams to me '70s. It screams Burt Bacharach to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, and and like a soft focus photograph as well. You know, a lot of Vaseline on that lens. <laughs> Lovely lens flare going on. <laughs> it's not JJ Abrams. <laughs> um. So we've often said that uh, certain album covers are made classic by the success of their album. Uh, I don't think this is one of those. It's not a particularly remarkable cover. No, uh, it belies the quality within. Indeed it does. Uh, And speaking of the quality within, shall we take a peek at that quality? I think we should uh, lift up the bonnet and see what's rumbling underneath. Okay, so we start with a little-known tune called Respect. Yeah, it, I, I'm sure I've heard it somewhere. <laughs> uh, so, as we went through a few weeks back when we did Otis Reading Live in Europe, this is a cover of Otis's original song. I think it's fair to say this did a little better than the original. It did. I mean, it's it's one of those curious examples of a cover becoming far more well-known and um, more popular than the original, Proud Mary being another sim- similar one. Uh, well, and and Tainted Love, which we've obviously been through uh, many months ago. Indeed. And, like, it, it's so, so well-known. It's been ranked by the Rolling Stone as the greatest song of all time. Yeah, which is fair which enough. Which is, I mean... you know, it, it's a belter. Like, it is a belter. It's, it's quite difficult to kind of talk about it. You know, you, we can eulogise about it, but it's it's going to be a bit tricky to um, enough. Well, let me spit a, let me spit a couple of facts at you first, then, whilst we get our thoughts in order. It was her first number one uh, in the US. It got to number three in Canada, uh, only number ten in the UK. Uh, it sold two million copies worldwide. Apparently, so you talked about it becoming sort of ubiquitously Aretha's song and, and, and superseding and exceeding the original. Jerry Wexler says that when he first played the song to Otis Redding, 
Otis laughed and said, that little girl done took my song away from me. (laughs) (laughs) So the reason that she covered this is because she'd been doing it in her live shows for years. Unlike the original Otis Redding version, she added the R-E-S-P-E-C-T bit in there, in which apparently TCB means taking care of business. For years, genuinely, Kev, for years, I honestly thought she was saying take out TCP. I'm like, what, have you got a grazed knee or something? <laughs> I mean, it's going to sting like a motherfucker. Exactly. But... Don't fucking be bringing that stuff anywhere near my knee. Because that does not give me any RS, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. No, no, mother, it does not. It does not solve all issues. You can't just put it on everything. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so apparently um, the idea of spelling out the lyrics was uh, not Aretha's herself, but her sister Carolyn, who did the backing vocals throughout this album. Well, as, as did Irma as well. Yes, indeed, indeed. And it, it also made the phrase sock it to me a household saying. Yeah. So all those elements were not in Otis's original, but if you listen to our review of Live in Europe uh, and have heard that album, you will know that Otis himself started doing exactly those bits in his live versions of the song. Such was the success and fame of this version. So can we talk about the Swampers? Oh, please. Because, so we've not talked about them thus far. So the they were the Muscle Shoals rhythm section. Yeah. And my God. Incredible. <laughs> I mean, it goes without saying that Aretha is fucking amazing on this. Yep. But the entire band, the entire band are so tight. It's absolutely pitch perfect. It is. The whole album is, but you're absolutely right. Tight. Always allowing Aretha as the star, as the artist, to take centre stage. I mean, she doesn't need much encouragement with that voice, let's be honest with you. Indeed, yeah. But, my God, yeah. I, Jimmy Johnson on the guitar. It's a really simple guitar part. You know, that riff. But everyone knows it. Right from the off, everyone knows it. The horn parts. This song gives you everything that makes Aretha great. The strength in her voice, the soul, the emotion, but also it's fun. It's powerful and it's fun. It's a great combination. It's a righteous funk that she could belt out till the cows come home and I'd be there lapping it all up. I fucking love it. It's, It's amazing. It's just a brilliant... Brilliant, perfectly put together piece of perfection. Yeah. Uh, so before we move on, the song has sort of her version of the song has has, has come to be seen as a, a as an anthem both for the civil rights movement and for women's rights. So there's just something I want to want to read from the uh, Detroit Free Press. So their critic Brian McCollum said. Franklin's song has been dissected in books and academic papers, held up as a groundbreaking feminist and civil rights statement in an era when such declarations weren't always easy to make. But then when he asked Franklin uh, around uh, that stance, uh, she said, I don't think it's bold at all. I think it's quite natural that we all want respect and we should get it. And I think that is just a perfect encapsulation of her outlook it wasn't intended to be. It may have become a big statement, and she embraced that, but it was just like, well, yes, of course, we all need respect. What's the big issue? It's brilliant. 
Yeah, it, you know, it's it absolutely, absolutely nails it. I mean, one of the one of the um, the funny things about it as well that I found when just when just looking into it, it was recorded on Valentine's Day. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, which um, yeah, give me give me my respect. Yeah, very good stuff. Otis's version is good, but there is only one respect. Yeah, it is the definitive version. Yeah. Okay. Shall I move on? Yeah, let's move on. Okay, we move on to another cover, Drowning My Own Tears, originally written by Henry Glover and recorded in 1951 by Lula Reed. Most famously, it was covered by Ray Charles, who had a number one hit on the R&B chart with his 1956 version. And, well, ask you what you a complete tonal shift mm-hmm. from the opener. This is a real low-down juke joint blues number. What do you think? I think it's an absolutely heartbreaking performance. I think the the arrangement's really clever because it's simple and unobtrusive. That it works in perfect harmony with her with her voice. That it allow it allows it to take the center stage and compliments it as as it goes along. I, th- I think it's a, a brilliant piece of music. I agree. This showcases not just her incredible vocal talent, but also her skills as a pianist, which we spoke about before when we, when we went through Amazing Grace a while back. In one of our very earliest clashes, actually. Mm-hmm. Again, the Swampers are so tight. Like Roger Hawkins on the drums on this, just brilliant and he was he was a young lad at the time apparently he was like 1920 something like that at the time of recording phenomenal this. phenomenal is right incredible the backing vocals sound great mm-hmm. but i i can't get past aretha i think heartbreaking is a great way to describe her performance here it's it's mesmerizing it's and it it just seems so loaded with pathos you, you feel like you feel like she's feeling every Every word, every lyric within it, yeah, it's it's yeah. it's fantastic. She's got this fantastic ability to sing covers, and and she, you know, well, considering the number of albums she put out over her career, it's not surprising she did a lot of covers within that. But she always had the ability to put her own stamp on whatever she was singing. Yeah, the no matter what song she sang, she made it her own through her interpretation of it and the sheer power of her performance. Exactly. It's um it may be a tonal shift, which you don't often see from chat one to track two, but it's fantastic. Uh, it's it's uh, I am held captive by it. Yeah, that's a that's a lovely way of putting it. Alright, okay. Let's move on to the title track. Not bad. Fucking hell. <laughs> No, uh, as I said, it was released in February '67. It got to number nine in the US. So this was this was her first big hit in in the states. Now it, it's been suggested that this song was about her relationship with Ted White. So he was, I should probably say, alleged, strongly alleged is probably a better way uh, to have been an abusive husband. And Aretha divorced him the following year and fired him as her manager. So lyrics such as, 
I don't know why I let you do these things to me. My friends keep telling me that you ain't no good. They don't know that I'd leave you if I could. I ain't never loved a man the way that I love you. So, yeah, it, it is entirely possible that is the case. However, Aretha didn't write this. It's not a cover, it's an original track, but it was written by songwriter Ronnie Shannon on commission from Ted White. So, I don't know, I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I think it's because of the... So the three words that I that I wrote down about Aretha's performance in this is powerful, raw, and vital. Oh, yeah. I think that, again, because of how she performs it with such gusto and you know, emotion dripping through it that of course you you can't help but feel like this is her expressing herself through her music about mm. what's going on in her life. And it's an absolute classic. It's perfect again. It's glorious. It's it's glorious. So you you said powerful, raw and vital. I've gone with a more alliterative approach to describe my interpretation of this song. It's it's sultry, it's sexy, it's soulful, but it's also full of sadness and of sorrow. It, yeah, it's so obviously I, I use the word power powerful, but it's there's a vulnerability to the power. It's yeah. it's amazing how it has that kind of balance to it. I, I agreed entirely. Agreed entirely. It's again, I have to praise the band. I think the horns add some great emphasis to the track, but they never detract from what Aretha's mm-hmm. doing. Ditto Jimmy Johnson's guitar parts and great little licks towards the end. I adore this. I'd 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 like a lot more. I mean it's it's less than three minutes and even then they fade out. I'm like, come on, carry on, give me more. <laughs> no, that's I think that's why it's it's perfect because it doesn't need to like of course, it wants like the classic James Brown thing. Leave always leave him wanting more. Um, yeah, and, that, and this does. That's the perfect uh, pop single. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, th- sorry, just coming back to the band again. So I've just seen the, another member of the Swampers who I, who needs praise is uh, the organ player Spooner Alden. Oh wow, yeah. That riff at the start. Well, apparently that's what that's what. That's what made it. So I'm going to read a quote here from from the trombone player, David Hood. He said, it was kind of a strange song and the session was going nowhere. But then Spooner Oldham came up with this great little lick and everyone fell in line with that, started playing, and that saved the song. It was minutes after that that we did the horn parts. Aretha played the piano while she sang, rather than just standing there singing. Her piano feel really helped the feel the musicians got to play with her. So, yeah, that says everything about how she was able to conduct the session by doing her thing, but also how in tune with her the band was with such... Because bear in mind, as the quote I read earlier, this was literally first morning, well, only morning, as it turned out. She's rocked up. She's not said anything. She just goes and plays the piano. Boom, here we go. And then the organ player's gone, yeah, all right, I'm into this, and then plays this glorious little tremolo organ part, which just sets you right into it. Oh, chills. So the the brilliant thing as well, about it is that as you say it's like right at the start of the session that they get they get her to sit down and just start playing and that and spooner oldham had been hired to play the piano so he just he just rocks up onto the um 
the Wurlitzer electric piano and joins in and magic <laughs> happens. Like, that's, that's just mad. Brilliant. And the best thing about the Swampers, about the Muscle Shoals rhythm section, is that they're all white fellas. They all it, all, it sounds so soulful and so really rootsy black music, but they're all they're all sort of white country boys. Um, it just goes to show that how talented musicians and versatile musicians can put their hand to anything. Mm-hmm. Great stuff. Love it. Okay. We will start to move quicker, guys. Don't worry. <laughs> so track four is Soul Serenade, uh, another cover written and performed by King Curtis, released on uh, King Curtis's 1964 album of the same name. Um, what do you think? So I think it's just a really beautifully put together song. It, again, after some of the the belting out and the 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 power, the soul diva kind of of the previous songs, it shows Aretha's vulnerability um, throughout it. And again, it's it's brilliant. This time we're going to have to um, point to the brass section for me. Oh, so yeah. Charles Chalmers, King Curtis, Willie Bridges. Melvin Lassie, all all of them, just yes, brilliant. Brilliant is right. It's it's got a nice sexy rhythm all the way through, and it is that does mostly come from the horns. It's fantastic. I, yeah, I, I don't have a great deal to say about it. It's got a really nice groove. I love listening to it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's one of those just sit back and immerse yourself in it tracks. As most of this album is, to be honest with you, it's, yeah, it's great. Like it a lot. Okay. All right. Don't let me lose this dream, Kev. Okay. <laughs> so this is an original co-written by Aretha and Ted White. Thoughts? So it's quite surprising um, that we get a bit of bossa nova. Well, I was going to say, Aretha does bossa nova. I don't think it's the best song, but her vocals, the backing, and again, how good the band are. It elevated to a high level. I think it's mm-hmm. of the songs that we've heard thus far, it's probably the weakest, but it's not a bad song. It's just you've had such heights beforehand that it's difficult to keep keep that standard going. I would largely agree with what you've said there. Everyone performs this admirably, but it feels massively out of place on this album. So I've written sarcastically, I don't like the girl from Ipanema. <laughs> because that's what it reminds me of with the guitar. Yeah, rhythm, no, I get, I get it. Uh, yeah, it's very well performed. Aretha's performance does elevate it, but I don't come to Aretha for well-performed, easy-listening, Latin-infused pop, uh, for one thing, Burt Bacharach does it better. <laughs> no, I'm being deadly no, serious. No, like... You know, we've we've talked before of our admiration for Bert Bacharach's work. And rightly so, by the way. We need to do some uh, Bacharach-written tunes on Album Clash at some point. Okay, uh, yeah, I think we are pretty much of a mind about Don't Let Me Lose This Dream, so shall we move on to Baby, Baby, Baby? Yeah, let's do it. So this was co-written by Aretha and her sister Carolyn. Uh, and what I have said is that this is Aretha back to doing what she does best, playing our hearts like a harp. Yeah, it's a beautiful bit of perfectly performed soul. It's, I think I made the note, a slice of gorgeousness. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I've said, in the hands of anyone else, 
this would be entirely unremarkable album filler. But what Aretha can do with album filler is alchemy. <laughs> yeah. She just makes it eminently more, I don't know what the word is, more impactful, I guess. It's, um, yeah, I, 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 we spoke so much about the first three tracks. We've hardly said anything about the next three, but there you go. This is really good. Yeah, it's it's just, you know, as we've said, the band, Aretha, everyone who's involved are absolutely killing it here. They are killing it here. And uh, one person we hope is not killing anything is Dr. Feelgood. <laughs> uh, so we open side two. With Dr. Feelgood, um, another one co-written by Aretha and Ted White. Before I get into what I think about the song, all I would say is, please, listeners, I do not recommend following Aretha's advice and letting Dr. Feelgood take care of all your pains and your ills. If you are unwell, please, please, please seek help from a trained medical professional particularly if Dr. Feelgood is also an alleged wife-beater. Or if if they are a trained medical professional, but they turn out to be Patch Adams. <laughs> I've never seen Patch Adams. You keep talking about Patch Adams. I've never seen... <laughs> That's the Robin Williams film. Yes. Yeah. Isn't he a kid's doctor or something? Yeah, and like he just turns up as a clown all the time, which would make me go very downhill. Exactly! <laughs> no, not bad. Anyway... Joking aside, what do you think of Dr. Feelgood? So I've always loved uh, Dr. Feelgood. The balance between the brass, her voice, the electric organ. It, I mean, it's got pure gospel vibes going on. It's great. It's just great. It is great. It's sexy. It's a sexy old tune, this, you know. Yeah, it's it's got all kinds of all kinds of things going on. It is that balance between like the um the devoted and the depraved. Exactly. Yeah, a very, very good way of putting it. It's like, yeah, I, 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 I don't need nothing but Doctor Feelgood taking care of business. <laughs> very much so. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, yeah, I really like Doctor Feelgood. So, uh, shall we enjoy some good times, Kev? Well, these are the good times. They are indeed the good times, as uh, originally recorded and indeed written by Sam Cooke in 1964. His version got to number 11 on the Billboard Hot 100. So it's probably not surprising that she's got two Sam Cooke covers. Because why wouldn't you? (laughs) Well, A, A, why wouldn't you? But apparently Sam Cooke was her main inspiration for wanting to go into pop music in the first place. And again, she had often played his songs uh, in in her life, so in her live shows. So uh, there you go. So what I've said here is, I can picture myself in a dive bar, listening to this being belted out at full volume whilst I'm supping down bourbon. So that's not the feeling I get. I just want to get up and dance to this. It brings absolute joy to my heart. Oh, I'm not saying it depresses me. No, no, I'm... but like. Your your reaction is like you just want to be in the dive bar sipping beer. I I want to just get up and boogie to this. It's it really I enjoy this a lot. So it is loads of fun. I agree with that. But the reason I say it's because it's it's just a low down dirty blues standard, mm-hmm. and I'm a big fan. We we we've talked about this in the past as well. I think we're both a big fan of a dirty twelve bar blues. Definitely, that's what this is. Again, the 
band is fantastic. They're tight. Mm-hmm. They're together. They never dominate. Yeah, I, I can't think of anything more to say. It's loads of fun. It's filthy. Love it. And again, we we probably need to credit the um, the arranger and the recording engineers here. Yes. Because as, as we've said throughout the musically, it's perfectly pitched. So you get Aretha is right bang in the middle and dominates as she should do. But the band give her enough space and the sound, the soundscape that's created absolutely elevates her voice up. You know, it's, it's, it's really, really well done. That's a really good point. You're spot on there. hundred percent agree with you. Yeah. And, and, and I can't, I can't put it better than that. So I won't try. Uh, so, Kev, if you want a do-right-all-day woman, you've got to be a do-right-all-night man. Wow. So, it's an original, uh, written by famed songwriters Chips Moman and Dan Penn. This, I mean, this says it all about about the quality of stuff that was coming out of Atlantic Records and of Aretha at the time. This was the B-side to Never Loved a Man. Just mad. Is that an A-side? Nah, it's a B-side. <laughs> Madness. So as I mentioned earlier, the backing track was laid down at fame, but the remaining tracks and the vocals in particular were set down in Atlantic Studios in New York, still with the Swampers, who Jerry Wexler had flown up to New York. So Dan Penn, uh, when speaking about the recording of this, he said, they cut I Never Loved a Man, and it was just romping, stomping. It was an out-and-out smash. Then they cut Do Right Woman. It didn't sound right. She wouldn't even sing it. I think I sang it as it went down on the track. They weren't going to cut any more at Rick Hall's because they had a little disagreement, and they had an A-track in New York and wanted to go A-track, so they all went up there. She put her sisters on it, sang over it, and played the piano herself. And I realised then you can make anything out of anything with a lot of tracks. I think maybe they had the bass drum and a snare and the bass that they used out of Alabama, and possibly the guitar. And it was such a wonderful record when they played it back. It's still one of the best records I've ever heard by anybody. Not because it's my song, but just that record. It'll reach out and get you in your heart. And it does. Yeah. I mean, there's not really a huge amount more that that we can add to to that because nope. it's just a beautiful slice of soul. So, some props towards uh, Carolyn Frank- Franklin, Emma Franklin, yes. Sissy Houston, because um, the backing vocals absolutely make this just brilliant. Just it is absolutely brilliant. It's utterly gorgeous. Everything about it is arresting. There's a little call out lyrically and musically to James Brown uh, at the start of the second verse and uh, where she says it's a man's man's world, um, which I like. It's really subtle, but it's really, mm-hmm. if, you know, you, you obviously can hear, you can hear the lyric, but even in the music, it, you can hear it. It's really subtle, but really clever. I like that a lot. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. It's And the message is simple. If you take care of me in the day, I'll take care of you at night. There you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So according to co-writer Chips Moman, yes, that is, well, apparently Chips was a nickname. Uh, maybe he loved Eric Estrada, I don't know. <laughs> well, he, he, he was actually born Albert Bartlett, but um, his, <laughs> his nickname became 
I was going to say, I, I couldn't think of another potato, so like, I was going to say King Edward's. But... King, I was going to say his nickname became King Edward. <laughs> Big mates of Maris Piper. <laughs> this, my friend, is social media gold. Look forward to seeing it on Twitter. <laughs> so yeah, according to Chip's Moment, the original backing track is slightly out of tune with the stuff that was laid down in New York. So apparently he says the piano is faintly sharp. I can't hear it personally, and from uh, previous clashes, I-, I can generally tell when things are out of tune, and I get, I get far too annoyed by them. But I, I didn't pick up on that. But according to the guy that wrote it and recorded it, it's always bugged him. So there you go. Yeah, you know. But we've talked about lucky happenstance and stuff like mistakes that are in records that yes. doesn't really doesn't really matter, and it's not going to matter here. No, indeed. Very last thing I'll say about it, it sounds a bit like a precursor to the uh, to Natural Woman, co-written by Carol King. Um and that is a good thing, by the way. But just in the in the in the sound of it, the arrangement, in the way she sings it, it's it does sound like a little bit of a precursor to that, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But yeah, all kinds of good. And a B-side, a fucking B-side. <laughs> Save me, Kev. Well, there's a bit of a groove going on here. There is a bit of a groove going on here. Well, and and that groove is very much the same chord progression as Van Morrison's Gloria, uh, but a lot funkier and with a lot less anti-mask bellendery. (laughs) And just general curmudgeonly behaviour. So who would win a grump off, Van Morrison or Marky Smith? I mean, obviously Van Morrison now because he's not dead and Marky Smith is, but who would have won it? Marky e. Smith. <laughs> what, as in he would have been the most grumpy of yes. the two? <laughs> Without question. He would have fired Van Morrison. <laughs> Van Morrison wasn't a bassist. Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, I love this. It's, so it's it's uh, it's co-written by Aretha and Carol Franklin. And King Curtis, he has a credit on this, probably because of the uh, horn parts in mm-hmm. the chorus, which are great. And Tommy Tommy Cogbill's bass here. Great stuff. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Much, much too short, if you ask me, this. Yeah, two minutes 20-something. I could do with it a little bit more. I I could do with a lot more. (laughs) But, yeah, it's uh, give me more of this, please. Um, I also like the reference to uh, the Cape Crusader, the Green Cornet and Cato in in the lyrics as well, which is quite fun. Yeah, big, big fan of Save Me. Great, great tune. Lots of fun. Yeah, nothing more to add there. Okay, and well, we go on to the closer, and uh, it's another Sam Cooke tune. A change is going to come. I adore this song. So the the original Sam Sam Cooke version, I've heard multiple different versions of it. I, I adore this song. So Aretha Franklin singing A Change Is Gonna Come is... Yeah, you, you've already pretty much got me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, may I please speak about the etymology of the song? Sure, yeah. How it came to be. So, Sam Cooke wrote it as a civil rights anthem, partially inspired by Blowing in the Wind, obviously by Bob Dylan, but also from his own personal experience. So, in October of 1963 in Louisiana, he was going to a show He'd called ahead to a holiday inn to make reservations for him and his wife. But when 
him and his entourage arrived. The clerk at the desk, she basically sort of furtively, nervously said, there's no vacancies. Sam Cooke, understandably, pretty pissed off about that. Asking to see the manager, so uh, staking his claim for Karen of the Year. <laughs> I, I um, mean... Yeah, I was going to say, really. with, some justi- no, no, with some justification, it has to be said. Uh, so, refusing to leave until he got an answer. His wife tried to calm him down, saying, they'll kill you, to which Sam Cook responded, they ain't going to kill me because I'm Sam Cook. When they eventually persuaded Sam and his entourage to leave, they drove away sort of blaring their horns and shouting insults. They then went to a, a motel downtown, whereupon the police arrested them for disturbing the peace. The next day, the New York Times ran a headline saying Negro band leader held in Shreveport. I mean, that's blunt, but I suppose it was 1963, so them were the times. Um, But quite understandably, African-Americans, not least of all Sam Cooke, were somewhat outraged by it. Uh, So Sam Cooke took his fury and righteous anger, and set it down into the quite beautiful A Change Is Gonna Come. In 2019, several decades after Sam Cooke's death, the Shreveport mayor apologised to his family for the event and posthumously awarded Cooke the key to the city. So just um, just on that song as well, that, so he first performed it on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and unfortunately there is no, um, the network did not save a tape of the performance. So they thought it because the performance was it was such a national you know moment of of this legendary black artist singing a civil rights song on the Tonight Show, and thought you know it was massively going to change things and for and it's going to be huge for Sam Cooke's career. But unfortunately, two days later, the Beatles perform on Ed Sullivan uh, and completely overshadows it. Yeah, Sam Cooke, a very underrated and very influential artist whom we should probably look into covering at some point on Album Clash. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so that's the background to the song. It's a beautiful song. I agree with Kev. All versions I've heard of it are phenomenal. I love this version. What I would say about this version, and this is in no way a criticism, she almost entirely depoliticizes it in the way she sings it, she somehow makes it a powerful, introspective ode to her own empowerment and to her own survival. And I I love that about it. I so I agree with you. I felt I felt it's a, it's a much more restrained version mm-hmm. than than some of the um different other versions that you hear. But I so I kind of felt that like similar to sort of the non, you know, the uh, non-violent protest mm-hmm. of uh, Martin Luther King, that there's more volume in a quiet action. Nice. I like that. And yeah. you, so that's, that's what I took from it. But, you know. And you may be right in that. I may have misread the reasoning behind the way it's performed. But no, like that's a perfectly valid interpretation that you've got because again, like a change is going to come. You can you can see it as a, as a civil civil rights thing. You can see it as a personal thing where you're trying to, and obviously we know that it's only a year later that she divorces her husband. Well, exactly. And stuff. So mm. yeah, that a change is going to come for her. 
Um, yeah. Or you know, you can you can view it loads of different ways. You can view this as a, a, like particularly given the the you know the opening track on the album, mm. given the you know some of the lyrics in "I Never Loved a Man," given given the lyrics in "Do Right, Do Right, Man." That a change is going to come is potentially like a female empowerment. Yep. You know, like there's yep. there's loads of different ways to interpret it. A hundred percent agree. And whatever her intent, again, you've got everything great about Aretha in this what three minutes, three and a half minutes, whatever mm-hmm. it is. You've got the low down subtlety, the vulnerability in the way she sings the verse. And then towards the end, you get that rapturous gospel style, which was her calling card. That was mm-hmm. what she became so celebrated for. It's it's a spellbinding end to the album. Yeah, that's a great way to describe it. The end to the album it is, however, and uh, ooh, the hairs on the back of my neck have stood up on it. And even talking about the album makes me feel all kinds of good. Love it. Great stuff. Shall I take us through some reviews, Kevin? I think you should. All right, so I've got a few. So the initial reviews, bizarrely, were very muted. So in his review for The Rolling Stone, John Lando criticised the album for the lack of versatility on the part of the sidemen. The drums weren't hard enough, the guitar was weak, and the production lacked polish. So there you have it. According to John Landau, one of the greatest studio bands of all time lacked versatility. Do you agree with that, Kevin? Absolute madness. <laughs> Fucking what? We've praised the performance of the band on this album, on pretty much every track. You rightly praised the production and engineering staff for the way they create the soundscapes. What the fuck is he talking about? I have absolutely no idea. Uh, that publication did, however, change its tune by the time of Aretha's sad passing, saying that the album puts the emphasis not just on the great songs or the amazing music, but on the person speaking them, her world, her story, and whatever journey she's on in life. It rings out like revealed truth happening in real time, a declaration of independence. It's pretty good. It is pretty good. Uh, Q, in their retrospective review, put it pretty well when they said the album stands untainted by time. She seems so much a force of nature, it's strange to recall this was actually her 10th album, which goes back to what we were saying right at the start, really, doesn't it? Yeah, like as we said, like it, it just broke open the doors for her. Yeah, exactly. Uh, right, so we know uh, Robert Criscoll gave it an A in his v- review for The Village Voice. However, he still had to be all, well, knobby about it. Of course he did. <sighs> May I read his review? Please do. Aretha's glory, and her failing, is that she never does anything perfectly. But here she comes as close as is good for her. A healthy mix of rocking soul, dreamy pop, and reflective testifying. Not all the tracks sound inspired, but on a collection that includes the title cut, Respect, Dr. Feelgood, Do Right Woman, and Hoof, that's his Hoof, by the way, Don't Let Me Lose That Dream, that doesn't really matter much, does it? Of course it's his Hoof. Of course it is. So she never does anything perfectly. Yeah. But this just comes as close as is good for her. 
so insufferable. This is a man's man's world indeed. <laughs> uh, that's it for reviews. I've got nothing more, unless you've got some more that I've not read that you want to talk about. No, I've got nothing more to add. All right, okay, let's go on to Legacy. So, I'm not going to talk about Aretha Franklin's Legacy. We know what it is, and we've spoken about it before. So, I'll come back to her very briefly at the end, but I want to talk about the legacy that this album unintentionally created at the small town of Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Before I do, so I'm going to say pretty much all of this is taken from the uh, Greg Camalier 2013 documentary film called Muscle Shoals. Which is great. It is great. Although it has a surprising amount of Bono, despite the fact that he never recorded there. No, but you know, he he manages to shoehorn on <laughs> everything. Pay your tax. <laughs> Pay your tax. Despite that, it's brilliant. I implore anyone with even a passing interest in the history of pop music, which, given you're listening to this pod, I'm assuming is all of you. If you've not seen it, watch it. You can currently, in the UK at least, rent it on... Amazon Prime or on Google Play, it's about £3.50. It's brilliant. Well worth the watch. Please go and watch it. Anyway, so if you've seen that documentary, everything I'm about to say, you'll know already. So, Soz, just skip ahead five minutes or so. <laughs> I mean, if we start telling people to skip forward through through bits, um, that's opening <laughs> a door that we don't necessarily want to. Kev, I'm sure the majority of people just check in to see your Twitter outros anyway. They don't actually <laughs> listen to the part. <laughs> Right, okay, so in terms of Fame Studios itself, well, a very diverse range of artists continue to come to Fame to record with the Swampers. That includes the likes of Candy Staten, Paul Simon, who who phoned Rick Hall and said, I want to jam with those black guys that did all the Wilson Pickett recordings. And Rick Hall's like, "Um, yeah, sound, but they're a bunch of country fellas. But off you, anyway, in 1968, Wilson Pickett comes back to fame uh, to record some more tunes. As I said, he'd made uh, Land of a Thousand Dances there and Mustang Sally had been recorded there as well. At the start of those sessions, a young guitarist from Nashville, Tennessee, by the name of Dwayne Ullman, who had been camping in a tent outside of the studio, basically came up, knocked on the door and says, uh, do you need a session guitarist uh, with his, you know, with his, Gibson Les Paul, you know, in tow. Do you, do you need a guitarist to play? I'll play with you. So he was basically invited to play at the sessions, including on Wilson Pickett's cover of Hey Jude. Which, have we talked about that before? Because I think we may have done, but it's worth talking about it again because it's fucking incredible. It is, it is one of... So we've talked about, so, like, obviously with, with this album covers massively outdoing the original and my my word it definitely does that yeah it's 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 phenomenal and a and, face melting solo well that's it and you know you've got to go some to be able to compete with wilson pickett's voice for me wilson pickett's the greatest male vocalist of all time uh there's a debate to be had about that but anyway uh, but fucking Dwayne Ullman with that solo ah. Oh, Chills. It's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. And and thus the sound of Southern Rock was born out of that, that Wilson Pickett session. So Rick Hall hired Dwayne Allman as a full-time session musician at Fame until Jerry Wexler heard his performance 
on Hey Jude, whereupon he immediately bought him out of his contract with Rick Hall and signed him to Atlantic. He went on to play on recordings by the likes of Percy Sledge, Clarence Carter, King Curtis, and, as I mentioned earlier on, Aretha, on her cover of The Weight by the band, which, seriously, guys, go and listen to it. It's It's fucking brilliant. brilliant. It is incredible. He went on to form the Allman Brothers Band with his brother Greg, which I've talked about earlier on in Can't Get It In My Head. Tragically, in 1971, aged only 24, and just after the band had broken into the public consciousness with Life at Fillmore East, he passed away in a motorcycle accident. So among the other budding artists to record at fame were an Alabama-based guitar band by the name of Leonard Skinnerd. However, Rick Hall passed up the opportunity to sign them. Uh, But that's not the end of their story in Muscle Shoals, because what happened next, Kev? I don't think anything happened with that band, did it? (laughs) So, we talked about, and we gave the quote from Rick Hall about it was war between he and Jerry Wexler. In 1969, the Swampers, a.k.a. the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section, they left their contract with Rick Hall and Fame Studios to found their own studio at 3614 Jackson Highway in Sheffield. Not that one. A premises which apparently had previously been a coffin showroom. (laughs) Uh, Oh, sorry. Did I forget to mention with whom they partnered to get the startup capital to form the studio, to open the studio, Kev? Um... Was it Bank of America? Uh, it wasn't Bank of America. It was a Mr. J. Wexler Esquire now, of Atlantic Records. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So, artists who came to record at the new Muscle Shoals studio, Jerry Wexler's Muscle Shoals studio, and play with the Swampers, it's, it's a veritable who's who from the history of pop music in the 70s. Cher, the Staple Singers, Glenn Frey, Boz Skaggs, Willie Nelson, Leonard Skinner, who, yep, had signed with Atlantic Records, the Allman Brothers themselves, Aretha, remember her? She went and recorded at the uh, at that studio. Elton John, Bob Dylan, even the fucking Rolling Stones. So three of the tracks that would end up on Sticky Fingers, including Brown Sugar and Wild Horses, were recorded at 3614 Jackson Highway. So this little drunken altercation between Rick Hall and Ted White inadvertently sparked a movement that would lead to some of the most iconic music of the 60s and 70s being recorded in this tiny, one-horse, bumfuck, nowhere town, excuse me if anyone's from Muscle Shores, Alabama, in the middle of nowhere. It is incredible, really. Yeah, um, and I would imagine Rick Hall probably regrets somewhat getting into a Barney with um, Mr. White. Indeed. Although, to be fair, he didn't, He also made a shitload of money with the Osmonds, who recorded most of their output at Fame Studios. And like the Osmonds or not, they sold a shit ton of records. They did sell one or two. And Crazy Horses is a banger. Certified. It is a belter, to be fair. <laughs> so, yeah, it, go and watch the documentary. It's fascinating. There's a lot of Bono in it. You are forewarned, but there's also a lot of great music in it too. So, yeah, great stuff. 
uh, I just wanted to talk about Muscle Shoals uh, and remind myself of some of the bands we've not yet covered on Album Clash, who we really need to. Yeah, um, there's there's a lot on that list um, that we should cover at some point. Indeed. Uh, so, back to Aretha for the closing remarks uh, in terms of her legacy. Very briefly, I will leave the last word not to myself, but to the 44th President of the United States, one Barack Hussein Obama, who, after her death, paid tribute by saying... Nobody embodies more fully the connection between the African-American spiritual, the blues, R&B, rock and roll, the way that hardship and sorrow were transformed into something full of beauty and vitality and hope. American history wells up when Aretha sings. There you go. And we cannot um, beat that. So, yeah, that's the perfect way to finish. Exactly. So, Kevin... What's your best song? What's your worst song from I've Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You? So, worst song is easiest. And it's not even a bad song. It's just, um, as we said, it doesn't really fit on the album. um, And it's not the best song on the album. So, Don't Let Me uh, Lose This Dream is the weakest song on the album. (sighs) Best song on the album. I love Save Me. I love Do Right Woman, Do Right Man. I love Dr. Feelgood. I loved I Never Loved a Man. But, uh, you know, Rolling Stone has called it the greatest song ever recorded. And while it's such a great way to open the album, it's respect. Fair enough. So, agree entirely on the worst song, and I agree with the reason entirely. It's not that I dislike it, it's just on the wrong album. Best song, and this isn't just because I don't want to be Johnny Obvious. It genuinely, for me, is my favourite song. It's the title track. It's utterly gorgeous and utterly heartbreaking at the same time. I've never loved a man the way I love you. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's. I mean, we could have picked many songs off this album. Yeah, indeed, we could. Great album. Okay, we're done. Indeed. Just remind people, Kev, what we'll be pitting this album against in our next pod in two weeks' time. So we will be doing "I'm Still in Love with You," uh, the fifth album by fifth studio album by the Reverend Al Green. Brilliant! Cannot wait for that. Uh, but I'm going to have to. Well, actually, you're going to have to. I'm not going to have to because I'm going to go and talk about it right now with Kevin. That's how we do these things. Uh, pulling back the curtain a little bit. Anyway, Kev, it's the reason everyone listens to the pod. What's been happening in Twitterland? Okay, so I was. Can you beat Silicon Heaven? No, I doubt it. Personally. I'm never gonna <laughs> like as as I said to you the other day. I think I've I've peaked, and I was really struggling because it's been pretty grim on on um, social media and that recently. And I'm not going to get into or give publicity to people that we may have discussed before um, who are horrible misogynists. But, for, mm. but fortunately, the Times letter, Letters page has absolutely saved me. Oh, go on. So, a limerick, if you like, by Sir Ian Duncan Smith <laughs> in the Times Letter page. <laughs> so, firstly, the fact that he is a knight of the realm beggars belief. Mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry. Please carry on. Okay, so I will read you... I will read you his limerick and his then, poetry, and then I will tell you my thoughts on it afterwards. Okay. okay. So Harry's fratricidal attack on his genus looks mean spirited and overzealous. Oh. 
It's not credible to claim reconciling your aim when you sound so bitter and jealous. So he starts off with genus and then doesn't stick the landing. So my notes, is this Vogue on poetry? <laughs> I mean, you've continued on the sci-fi theme there, Kev. Mm-hmm. So fair play to you. <laughs> because that's the only explanation. It's fucking... It's not even that good. It's it's juvenile, yet twatty at the same time. It's just... Fuck off. Well, it's all this... Like, so, as we record, there is an ongoing furore amongst the commentariat of the UK about um, Harry's book or stuff that's written in it. <laughs> Frankly, who cares? There are bigger things going on in the country at the time, and wasting oxygen on on this is nonsense and not at all a deflection from other things going on. Well, I was going to say, are you suggesting that the uh, Prince's current prevalence across the front page is maybe something of a deceased feline? Mm. Um, or possibly um, some kind of... It's like a horse, but a, maybe you would describe it as a donkey <laughs> that might have deceased. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, by the way, you should all go and watch Wag the Dog. Uh, it's not a new film. It's like nearly 25 years old. And uh, to warn, it has got John Travolta in it, but it's really good. Yeah, it's he's not in his Battlefield Earth. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so, yes. well, thank, thank you for regaling us with these tales of poetry. What does that mean for people keeping in touch with us on the socials? So, yes. Um, so the way I discovered... Um, the beautiful Seamus Heaney-like verse of uh, the former uh, leader <laughs> of the opposition. Well, yeah, for, he was the former leader yes. of the opposition. Yes. Um, on Twitter, whilst you're on Twitter, you can find our pages at Clash Album. If you like carefully curated quality content, you can go to our Insta at Clash Album. Or if you want to um, send your own uh, filthy limericks, you can send it to our email, albumclash at gmail.com. Please do. I look forward to seeing and learning just how eloquent each of you are uh, with the bardic verse. If you'd like an opening line, there was once a man from Nantucket. (laughs) On that note, uh, I have, as usual, been Timothy. And I am, as ever. We shall see you next time, guys. Thank you for listening. Take care. Thank you. Bye.